This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about understanding how a consumer proposal debt consolidation works and who can use the consumer proposal. Uh, Blair's going to explain how making a proposal can allow you uh, the opportunity to consolidate and cut your debt without borrowing added interest or professional fees. We're going to understand, get a chance to really understand the process and whether you might qualify to use one to deal with your debt. So Blair, let's start at the beginning. Can you explain what a consumer proposal is and how it's different to consolidating debt with a bank loan or financing? Because there's a big difference. For sure, Elaine, and I'm really happy on today's segment because we talk about proposals a lot, you know, in a nutshell, what it is, and of course, we're going to give you that summary, but really getting down to that next level of detail of, you know, what are the nuts and bolts, who can qualify, what are the timelines, we're going to go through all of that today to really give that next level of detail for someone that could be considering this type of a remedy. And what a consumer proposal is, it's a consolidation option that allows you to put all of your debts together and repay what you're able to afford to repay. So first off, there's not a dollar of interest that's charged when you file a consumer proposal. It's just a question of how much of that debt that's outstanding can you reasonably afford to pay back if there was no further interest charged and you're not going to be making payments for the rest of your life. A proposal has to be done in a term of up to five years and usually two to four years is most common. So for most people, when they file a consumer proposal, there's immediate relief uh, from all of the interest charges. There's immediate relief for all of the collection activities and there's a significant reduction in the amount of debt that's owed often as much as 50 to 80 percent of the debt um, is written off it's not collected by your creditors and once you satisfy that proposal it's legally considered as paid in full even though you've just paid back the portion that you can afford so what happens when you file a consumer proposal is you have to link directly with a licensed insolvency trustee Um, only a trustee can help you with a proposal nobody else has the standing to do so not a lawyer and this isn't something you can do on your own and then the trustee will help you structure that proposal and it might be you know you've got $25,000 of debt and you can afford to pay back you know a third of that or just over $8,000 and you're going to make those payments over a term of up to 60 months Uh, once you've decided what that offer looks like your trustee is going to send it out to your creditors and they've got 45 days to consider that offer And all we need to accept the proposal is a simple majority by dollar value of the people that you owe money to. So it doesn't matter if there's, you know, 15 different creditors and and 10 of them will say, no way, no, how do we want a proposal? Um, As soon as we get more than half of your debt to say yes to the proposal, it's legally binding on everybody. Nobody can opt out of this proposal, regardless of whether it's the government or a payday loan company or just a bank that doesn't want to negotiate. As soon as we get 50% to say yes, the proposal is legal binding and that happens in just about every case that we deal with and it's you know quite simply because 
creditors understand that some recovery is better than no recovery. And the alternative, if a creditor rejects a consumer proposal, is the person is not obligated to file for bankruptcy, but that's often their next option because they can't pay the debt back in full. Uh, if you've already re been rejected for a consumer proposal, you know what else is out there? It could be a personal bankruptcy, but it's about 1% of cases where we don't reach a deal in a consumer proposal. About 99% of cases we do reach a deal. Uh, just one final aspect here is a consumer proposal is not refinancing. There's no new loan, no debt. There's no credit rating qualifier that you need to have. Um, some people come in with a perfect credit rating. They've never missed any payments whatsoever, but they know they're stuck on a minimum payment trap that they'll just never get out of debt doing what they're doing. Um, other people come in, they've been sued for their debts. Collection agents have been hounding them for years. It doesn't matter at what stage you're at. A proposal can be implemented at any point um, to help you get back control over the debt. Okay, so before we ask the question about um, how do you qualify for a consumer proposal, if you already know that this is the avenue that you want to take, you want more information, but this is the thing that feels like it might be the best option for you, Sands & Associates number is 1-800-661-3030. Their website is sands-trustee.com. So how would a person qualify for a consumer proposal, Blair? Yeah, that's a great question. And and one point I forgot to mention just as we were talking, yeah. Elaine, is just in terms of costs of a consumer proposal. And this is where sometimes things can seem too good to be true. And, and trust me, I was as, as skeptical as the next person, but all of the costs are included in what you repay in a consumer proposal. So if you decide you can pay back 30 cents in the dollar of your debt, that's all that you pay back. And the government sets a government tariff that says of that 30% that you pay back, some of it comes to the trustee, roughly 20 20% of your payments, the balance of it, roughly 80% gets paid out on the debt. So there's no extra cost when you do a consumer proposal above and beyond what you can afford to repay. So, so administration costs are just not a barrier to take into consideration. Uh, in terms of how you qualify for a consumer proposal, you know, essentially, if you're not able to pay your debts, uh, if you owe more money than you own in assets, essentially, you probably qualify for a consumer proposal. Uh, I know on the, the nuts and bolts of what you need to know is you have to be filing as a person and not a business. So it is a consumer proposal. There are options for businesses to make a proposal. And quite often it's someone where they might have some business debt, where maybe a business has shut down, they've been left with some liability uh, for GST or personally guaranteed debt. Um, those persons can certainly file a consumer proposal to deal with that. Uh, you can have debts of up to $250,000, and that excludes the mortgage on your principal residence. So that's quite a high limit. There's not too many people I see um, that have upwards of you know $200,000 of debt or, or are approaching that limit. So just about any situation uh, where you've got a significant amount of debt, a proposal can work. And it's also possible to file a joint consumer proposal. So if two people have some debts in common, it could be husband and wife, or it could be just two people um, who, who borrowed some money together they can file a joint consumer proposal and that debt limit is up to $500,000. Uh, so there's a lot of wide eligibility depending on how severe the problem is. Um, the only other eligibility is you just can't have an open consumer proposal. So sometimes we speak with folks, they're in a consumer proposal now, uh, they've got to finish that before they consider dealing with some new debts. But it also does explain that when you do a consumer proposal, you know, it has an impact on your credit, but it certainly doesn't make you untouchable. It's still quite often you're able to get uh, additional credit even before the proposal uh, has been completed. 
you know, one other requirement on how you qualify for a consumer proposal is you have to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee. So again, no debt repayment agent, no credit counselor, no lawyer can file a consumer proposal for you. And you've got to be careful too, because sometimes if you reach out for advice, and we talk a lot on this show about credit counselors, whether they're not for profit or for profit credit counselors, be very careful if they're giving you advice and whether you should or should not do a consumer proposal, because you have to be aware if a credit counselor just referred everybody away to do a consumer proposal, they wouldn't be in business very long because they don't make any fees when an individual goes to a trustee to file a consumer proposal. So you definitely want to get the insight directly from a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, which costs you nothing to get that in that information. Are there situations where it's not a good idea to use a consumer proposal to deal with your debt? And, and what might what might that situation be if there is? Yeah, there's certainly um, situations where it just doesn't make sense. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, your ability to make some regular monthly payments. So if you have a very high amount of debt, but you have some limited or very unstable income, making a, a successful proposal could be unlikely. And in some cases, personal bankruptcy is, is a better option. Um, so sometimes folks come in and they've got, you know, 20 years of past income tax debt, the, inc the interest and penalties on that are now into the hundreds of thousands of dollars even paying back 15 or 20 cents on the dollar of that just might not be affordable, especially if it's someone where their income is sporadic, they might be self-employed and things might, you know, be feast or famine at certain points. Um, so you want to make sure if you sign on to a consumer proposal, it's affordable to you that the portion of the debt that you're going to be reduced down to is still something that you can absorb into your budget. Uh, another situation where a proposal might not be a good fit uh, is if you're over $250,000 of debt. Now, it's not to say you can't do a proposal. There is another type of a proposal uh, listed in the law called the Division One proposal. We can go into that in, in more detail at some point, a little more technical. Um, but some different rules and different processes apply. So you do have to be under that $250,000 limit. Um, in some cases, if your debts are relatively low, let's say it's, you know, a couple thousand dollars of debt and you've got really good income each month, you might be able to just budget yourself out of this situation. In those cases, you might work with a not-for-profit credit counselor, try to work with them to get some budgetary coaching or maybe get a little bit of an interest reduction. So a proposal can make sense, you know, if the debts are over, say, four to $5,000, that's when you should consider that as an option. Um, but in some cases where the debts are quite small, a proposal might be more of a serious, significant legal remedy than what you actually need to do. Uh, what's also important to know is just reaching out to talk to a trustee doesn't mean you're automatically going to be put into a consumer proposal. And there's going to be no impact to your credit rating on just getting some advice. And for a lot of folks that we sit down with, we're going to talk to them about some do-it-yourself options. If it's someone with high income and low debt, well, let's look at your budget and see where you might be able to save. Um, in some cases, people come in and they've got all these collection notices. But when we look at the actual debt, well, these are 10-year-old debts you haven't paid on. These are essentially uncollectible. You could never be sued for these debts. So it depends on whether you can handle the stress of getting some collection calls. We'll tell you how to stop those even without a consumer proposal. But we're going to help you understand all of your options and show you why a trustee is your best ally if you're facing a debt problem. Consumer proposal is one tool in the toolbox, and it's certainly one that a lot of people see a lot of value in, but it's not the only piece of advice you're going to get when you sit down with a trustee.
Okay, so let's say I've decided consumer proposal, or it seems that that's the best the best option to take. What's the kind of the stuff that I need to bring to you? What do, what do you need to see of mine in order to to get that started? Mm -hmm. Like many things in life, the most important thing, 80% is just showing up, you know, just attending <laughs> that meeting, reaching out, you know, asking for help and being willing to have a conversation with us, you know, where that conversation is going to go. You don't need to have any documentation prepared, but it's good to know, hey, we're going to ask you a few things about who you owe money to and around how much you owe to each of them. Pretty logical stuff. We're going to try to understand your budget. So what's your income? How much do you earn in a month? Uh, what's your household size, the general expenses, um, any medical conditions, any things that might be changing. If you know you're going to have to move and rent's going to get more expensive, we want to talk about all of those things. Um, do you own any assets? And a lot of people think if they file a proposal or a bankruptcy, they have to lose all of their assets. Well, in a proposal, you never lose any assets. You actually keep everything that you have. Uh, and then we'll make sure that you know, you're know you filed up to date with your taxes and any government debts are dealt with. So the first meeting, it's a generally it's a positive, it's an informational meeting, it's a, just a consultation to help you understand what's out there. And the more information you have about your situation, the better advice we'll be able to give you. I would think it would be a, a great stress reliever for anybody walking in the office and sitting down and having that first meeting. And that's the idea. A lot of people say it feels like a weight's been lifted off their shoulders, just unloading a lot of things they've been carrying for a lot of time, and then just getting that hope, knowing that there are options that are out there and probably better options than you ever thought existed. We'll be back with more right after this. Wage garnishment. It's, it's a pretty scary term when, when you have the idea that somebody could actually start taking your wages without you knowing, or even if you knew but had no control to stop it. Blair, a big question for me when I started thinking about this and reading about it, how fast can a creditor take my income? And that's got to be unbelievably stressful for somebody in that situation. Yeah, I would generally say that the clients that are subject to a wage garnishment, you know, they're the most urgent of the urgent situations that we see. So, you know, even everyone that answers our phone at Sands and Associates, if they know there's a wage garnishment, we're trying to book somebody, you know, same day. Let's see if someone's in between meetings. Can they talk to the person right away? Because that can be just, you know, quite life altering if suddenly you're not you're expecting your full paycheck and you get 70 percent of your full paycheck or maybe less than that, depending on the situation. So absolutely wage garnishment is something that can really literally smack somebody in the face with their debt situation. It can really reiterate to them, oh, this is so serious that someone's either taking court action against you or the government has decided they're out of patience and they've decided to really start intercepting your money before it comes to you. So obviously it's very severe. In terms of how quickly it can start, well, making a single payment late isn't usually a severe consequence. But if you have a pattern of that, or if you have a bunch of debt that remains unpaid, your creditors are likely to start taking escalating steps to get you to resume payments and get them repaid. Every creditor has their own policies and their own practices, but you can anticipate some of these actions to start happening and then eventually escalating. So if you start missing payments, well, oftentimes there'll be late fees charged to you and perhaps some NSF fees if your payments bounced. Um, creditors will often raise your interest rate. If you're delinquent, they'll take away any preferred interest rate and charge you a much higher rate. Uh, of course, they'll put notations on your credit report. So it'll make it more difficult for you to incur other debt, give a you know, heads up to creditors that this person is having trouble meeting their obligations. Uh, they might start to lock down the account and you'll find, well, you can't incur any new debt until you get this balance paid off. 
Typically, it's after three months where you've started to miss significant payments on an account. That's when they start to turn your account over to a collection agency. And sometimes it's an in-house collections department, but quite often it's a third party where essentially the person you borrowed money from or the institution has decided at that point they've given up on the customer relationship. They want to get the heavy hitters involved, which is a third party collection agency. Um, and that's when people can really start to feel harassed and highly stressed when collection agents start to contact them. And there's some rules around what a debt collector can do, but a couple of things are surprising. You know, there's no maximum number uh, to the number of times they can call you in a day. So I have some pe people tell me whether they call me 20 or 30 times a day. And my response is, well, as long as it's within the hours of 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, through the week and 1 to 5 p.m. on Sundays, they're really not doing anything wrong. They're allowed to persistently call. Um, they can call your relatives, your employer, even your friends if they have that contact information. Uh, and if your debt's been co-signed, they have the right to communicate with a co-signer and seek payment. Now, when they call your, you know, your employer, your friends, they can't start to discuss your debt, but they can say, hey, we're trying to reach this person. We're having trouble. Do you have their contact information? And generally, people will read between the lines. Well, hey, this, why am I getting called about somebody else's debt? And it'd be a little bit embarrassing. Now, eventually, what can happen is if none of these strategies are bearing fruit, if the collectors aren't able to get their money back, if you know charging the extra fees and interest rates are, aren't, aren't bearing fruit, what creditors can do is they can take you to court. And this can happen once they've received a court judgment, they can get permission to take an asset such as a vehicle or even register a charge against your home as a way to secure their payment against the debt. And then finally, and most often, if somebody doesn't have an asset like a home they can register against, they can be permitted to garnish your income, which means a portion of your wages and other incomes get paid directly to your creditor until your debt is repaid. And they can even add their legal fees, their costs, extra interest charges on top of it. Um, provided they follow the right processes, wage garnishment can be undertaken by creditors like banks, credit card companies, collection agencies, private lenders, even an individual that you owe money to, and also the Canada Revenue Agency uh, is able to garnish for things like tax debt, student loans, and EI overpayments. Wow, it just sounds horrific. But I know that folks go through this, and, and if you're going through this right now, and this is all you need to know, this is the phone number for Sands & Associates. Talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and figure this out. There are lots of good remedies, and, and Blair, we're going to talk about those. The phone number, first, 1-800-661-3030. So a uh, question I've got, how long does it take for a garnishment to start for someone? Well, most creditors need to get two court orders for a wage garnishment, and that usually takes some time, generally a few weeks to a couple of months, because you have to be served by, for, by documents when you're being taken to court. So the first court order they have to get is what's called a judgment against you that confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. So if you don't believe it's a valid debt, when they're trying to get that judgment against you, you would show up in court and demand proof, well, show me this is a valid debt. You know, in most cases, people have a debt, they know it's valid, they're just not able to pay it so the creditor will be successful in getting that judgment once the creditor has this judgment against you they can then seek what's called a garnishing order and once they get the garnishing order that's when they contact your employer's payroll department they send them the garnishing order and they direct the employer's payroll department to withhold funds from your paycheck and remit the money to the court 
And after the money is placed in court, that's when the garnishing creditor can apply uh, to, to get those funds being, being held there. So it's a number of steps. It does take some time, but you have to be careful. You're not caught unaware, uh, caught unaware because sometimes people get to the point where they just stop opening their mail. They say they know it's all bad news and what does it really matter whether I open it or not? Well, it can really matter because if there's some upcoming court actions, the creditor can ask the court to even issue a warrant for your arrest if you're requested to appear and you don't do so. So you're never arrested for owing money in Canada. That's just not a thing. Um, but you could be arrested if there's a court action about the debt, you're asked to appear and you just ignore it. A warrant can be sent for your, your arrest. So you want to be careful about that. Uh, one important exception where I mentioned all of these steps, the two court hearings, the notice that you'll get, an exception to that is if you owe money to Canada Revenue Agency. So Canada Revenue Agency, being the government, they can shortcut many of the steps that I've just outlined. They don't have to get a judgment. They don't have to get a garnishing order. Uh, what they can do is they can skip those steps and they can just issue what's called a requirement to pay. And that's a notice that goes directly to your employer or even to a client if you're self-employed. And it would direct the, the employer or the client uh, to withhold whatever the certain percentage of funds would be and remit them directly to Canada Revenue Agency before they send money to you. So for a lot of people, they don't realize a garnishment is happening until they suddenly get short paid on their paycheck and they contact their HR department. And then suddenly they're aware uh, of this court order or the CRA order that's been received. In terms of how much money can be taken, well, in the province of BC, it's up to 30% of your net income that can be garnished from each paycheck. Um, but it's important to know those limits do not apply to Canada Revenue Agency. Canada Revenue Agency can take up to 100% uh, of your paycheck if they want to, 100% of your self-employed income from a client, and even other income, which is completely safe from a bank garnishy, for example, things like CPP, OAS, and EI benefits, they can't be seized by a private creditor, but CRA can seize all of those things. So it's, in general, it's 30%, but it could be up to 100%. And there's a few streams of income that may be exempt, but not when you're dealing with the government. Okay. So can we spend the, I'm feeling quite depressed about this. Oh. Can we spend the last <laughs> few minutes yeah. <laughs> of this segment? Boy, oh boy, it just sounds like a nightmare for, for folks. Um, what are the options? What what do I have? What can I do uh, to dispute or stop this kind of a garnishment? Well, you, you can do a lot. So I am happy what we're pivoting here because you're right. It is probably the worst situation you can imagine being. And as you worked for this hard-earned money, you're struggling to make ends meet and suddenly you're not getting your paycheck. Well, what can you do? So a couple things. You can decide to apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside. If you can prove to the court the order is causing you serious financial hardship or it isn't necessary to get payment of the debt, the court might agree. They might also agree to exempt a higher proportion of your wages. So you might say, well, I can't afford to have 30% taken from my paycheck, let's agree at 10% and you can show the court a budget on why that's reasonable. Um, or you can work out informally a payment schedule with the creditor to say, okay, we can stop with all these court proceedings. You know, I'm going to make a plan and stick to it to repay the debt. Now, that can work if you have the ability to repay this debt and can even afford even part of a garnishment. For the vast majority of people that we see, they just need immediate relief. They need this garnishment to stop. They need to start getting their paychecks and whatever they can repay is going to be a whole lot less than 30% or even 10% of their income because they just can't afford more than that. So what you can do to stop a garnishment is you can work with a licensed insolvency trustee to file either a consumer proposal or to declare bankruptcy. 
both of those options, as soon as you file a proposal, for example, the trustee will send notice to the courts, notice to the employer. They can stop sending your wages to the creditor. They can start giving you your paycheck. Literally the day you sign on the documents, um, there's what's called the stay of proceedings, which means any proceedings against you have to stop. A garnishment is a proceeding against you, and that comes to a grinding halt as soon as you file either a bankruptcy or a proposal. The next paycheck you receive after then, you should get at 100% of what you're owed. Wow, so it can happen that quickly. It certainly can. And as I mentioned early, you know, these are the top of the urgent of the urgent, the clients that we deal with. So quite often people will take a couple of weeks to have meetings, get all their documents together. Uh, we've turned around situations in 24 hours where someone said, I'm getting paid in a couple of days. I've got all my information ready. I need to get this started. So we react as quickly as we can. Uh, it's usually within a week or two, but it can be as short as a couple of days if someone needs that immediate relief. And I like this part of the segment where, where, we, where we're going to talk about why it's such a good idea not to get to that place. I mean, if you are, there's help there. Sands & Associates is going to help you. But if you're in a, a bind, if you, if you can feel that your debt is unmanageable and you don't know what to do, the first thing you can do is get a hold of uh, Sands & Associates and say, this is my situation. So that all this other stuff that we've just talked about isn't even in the, on the horizon for you. It, it's about starting to manage that debt. And, and it's just such a such a great uh, set of solutions. Can we talk a little bit about that, especially the warning signs that may not mm -hmm. be obvious for folks? Yeah, you know, from our experience, debt problems don't resolve themselves. So just ignoring them does not make things get better. They just get worse. And the most common warning signs are things, you know, that you, you wouldn't always think of as traditional financial warning signs, but are you constantly thinking about your debt? Are you feeling debt stressed, worried, or anxious about your finances? Um, are you stuck in a cycle where you're only making your minimum payments and or are you relying on your credit cards to meet your cost of living? If any of those things talk to you, your current reality, you're not alone, especially in today's environment. It's very difficult to make headway with high costs, high interest rates, everything like that. So reach out for help before it gets to the time when your wages are being garnished. You don't need to wait for such a severe situation to get help. We'll be back with more right after this. I want to talk about what bankruptcy means in Canada. It's really about understanding the basics of personal bankruptcy in Canada because it's a little different, certainly in the United States, or maybe a lot different, depending on your perspective. But Blair's going to explain what it means to declare personal bankruptcy here, as well as debunk some of the common myths around this very often misunderstood legal debt relief process. Okay, Blair. So can you take us through what it means to file for bankruptcy in Canada? I know that's a big question, um, but I, I, the fact that it's so different than what we're sort of see on television dramas every week or hear about in the United States. Yeah, you know, in, in just the, the fewest word possible, bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we've got a YouTube video on our channel with that title, and it's many people have this preconceived notion that bankruptcy is going to be you know, incredibly public, intrusive, they'll lose everything, they'll never recover, um, and none of those things are true. We're going to talk about a bunch of factors today of why bankruptcy can make a whole lot of sense for a lot of people and can be such a key step to enable them to have a much better life in the future by putting the past behind them. So what is bankruptcy? Well, it's a federally legislated remedy that allows you to get rid of unmanageable debt. 
So if you've got too much debt, um, no matter what the source is, it could be government, it could be private lenders, it could be the big banks, bankruptcy is your opportunity to get a fresh start um, unburdened by a, an amount of debt that you may never be able to, re, to repay if you didn't get the help. So to be eligible to file for bankruptcy, you have to owe at least $1,000, which is a very low bar. And trust me, nobody files bankruptcy owing just $1,000 these days. Um, but that's the, basically the table stakes, at least $1,000 of debt. And you have to be insolvent. And insolvent means that you can't repay your debts as you're being asked to do so, or that the debts you have are worth more than the assets you have. Even if you sold everything, you wouldn't be able to pay off all your debt. Now, just because you're insolvent doesn't mean you're in bankruptcy and doesn't mean you have to file for bankruptcy. Insolvent is just a calculation you do on a sheet of paper, and many people at many points in their lives will be in a situation where they're basically insolvent on paper. They owe more money than they have assets, but very few of those people will have to file for bankruptcy. What bankruptcy is is saying, you know, I'm in an insolvent situation, I don't see that things are going to be able to get better, and I need the relief granted by the Canadian government to get me back on track to give me a fresh start. So very quickly, you don't need to get permission from the court or your creditors to file for bankruptcy. You don't need to hire a lawyer to represent you. Just about every bankruptcy in Canada and everyone that I've done over the last 15 years has been a voluntary proceeding. So no one gets forced into this proceeding. It's you come and see a trustee, you decide who you're going to work with, when you're going to start the proceeding, um, and almost right away you get some relief from that debt stress and you just focus focus on completing a bankruptcy proceeding um, to get you that fresh start. And the key that you that you included in, in what you just said is, but you do have to see a trustee. You have to go to a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only person who can facilitate or navigate you through the system. They've got you've got the clout, you've got the legal representation to do that and nobody else does. Exactly, Elaine. So if you need to file a bankruptcy in Canada, you can't do it on your own. It doesn't matter what lawyer you might try to hire. They're not allowed to file it either. The government created a distinct role of a licensed insolvency trustee where we're the only professionals, the only officers of the court that are empowered to help individuals file either bankruptcies or consumer proposals. And what's great about dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee is it's not like you're hiring a lawyer and you're negotiating an hourly fee and you're worried about upfront costs. Everything is free and confidential to start. And then once you go through with the proceeding, everything is set by government tariffs. So there's no surprises. So let's talk a little bit about, about the process and the various steps. And the step one, Elaine, as you alluded to, is to connect with a licensed insolvency trustee. And at Sands & Associates, we've got a number of LITs. We serve the entire province. And whether you opt for a virtual meeting, a telephone meeting, or an in-person meeting, we'll talk with you confidentially to understand and assess your situation and discuss all of the options that are possible for you to resolve your debt. So of, of the people that we help now, about 15 to 20 percent of them end up filing for bankruptcy. So it's far from a sure thing when you, when you phone up Sands and Associates that you'll be put into a bankruptcy proceeding. What about 85 percent of people or 90 are doing these days um, is filing consumer proposals, which we're going to talk about in other segments. But by seeing a trustee, you're going to get access to the full suite of debt resolution options that are available to you. And it all starts with that free and consultation. Okay, and then step two, Blair, for someone? 
Well, step two, if we've had a really good discussion, we've explained the options, and the person decides that they need to move forward with a personal bankruptcy, we ask them to complete an information form. So it's nothing that you wouldn't anticipate having to provide. It's things like ID, it's your most recent bill statements, your last tax return, um, you know, proof of your income. It's all the things that are going to help the trustee assemble your file and get it ready to be submitted. And all of these things can happen pretty, pretty quickly. So sometimes when people come in thinking they need to file for bankruptcy, it's because, my gosh, their wages are being garnished at 30%. They're getting, you know, 70% of what their normal paycheck would be because creditors are taking it from them before it even reaches their, their, their hands. So if we needed to work quickly, we could file a bankruptcy in as little as 24 hours and put a stop to those collection activities, those wage seizures, so someone can get pretty immediate relief once they've completed the information form, we've prepared the documents, and they've been in our offices or virtually met us with, you know, DocuSign or various things like that um, to sign the documents to start the proceeding. And, and the way to start that proceeding is two ways. You can call them at 1-800-661-3030. You're calling Sands & Associates, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can go to the website, sands-trustee.com, and start that process. So how about step number three, Blair? Well, so step three is you've met with the trustee, you've put the information together, you've signed the documents. Well, now you need to complete the bankruptcy process. And again, a lot of people think going into bankruptcy, oh my gosh, it's six or seven years, there's going to be notices in the newspaper, someone's going to show up at my house and start carting away my furniture. None of those things are going to happen. So what's going to happen is your trustee or your estate manager, who's a person that works very closely with the trustee, is going to guide you through the process. Our objective is the same as yours. Let's have no surprises. Let's get this done, you know, as quickly as it can be done and as inexpensively as it can be done while respecting the law. So the core things that an individual has to focus on if they file for bankruptcy, and keep in mind they're not paying any of their debts anymore, they are not have no responsibilities to their creditors, what they have to do to the trustee is every month they have to complete a statement of income and expense. So it's a one-page budget sheet, and it just shows here's the income of the household, and you provide some pay stubs to confirm it, and then where did that money go? So how much went for food, groceries, entertainment, travel, so on and so forth. You don't need to prove your expenses, and the trustee is typically not going to audit you on them, but it's important part of bankruptcy is a financial rehab, rehabilitation component. Uh, not everyone is in bankruptcy because they couldn't budget. Some people are, but not many. Um, but everyone can benefit from just having to keep a regular budget, and that's about 80% of the work that you do in bankruptcy is just keeping that budget every month. Um, aside from keeping that budget, there's going to be a payment obligation in bankruptcy that's going to be set by your income. So in the event that you're considered low income, which for an individual is with monthly income after taxes of less than roughly $2,400 in the province of BC, if you're low income, you pay just an administration fee um, over the nine-month period of bankruptcy. Again, not six or seven years, about nine months or so. Um, you pay a fee of about $2,300 set into manageable monthly payments. If you're not low income, the bankruptcy duration is longer by about a year. It's about 21 months in total and your payment is based on your income. It can scale up or down if your income goes up or down. Um, but again, all this is explained to individuals before they start a bankruptcy proceeding. So we said you'll keep a budget, you'll make some payments based on your income. The last thing is you're going to attend two financial counseling, uh, counseling sessions. They're normally done over video these days, occasionally in the office as well. They're great information to help you rebuild your credit, have, a good financial, have good financial habits emerging from bankruptcy, and really move forward trying to
trying to put this in the rearview mirror and rebuild all of your credit going forward. So those are the main steps that you've got to do. You prove your income, you make some payments, you keep the budget each month, and then you attend the two financial counseling sessions. Okay. So do you want to do step four, or would you like to spend this last bit of time talking about uh, the signs that you recommend someone consider personal bankruptcy? Well, let's see here. What I'm thinking, Elena, step four is, is pretty quick, so that's just basically yeah. you get your certificate of discharge. Let's talk a bit about what bankruptcy doesn't mean, because I'm always concerned, you know, people have these various mis- misconceptions, and sometimes that will stop them from reaching out because they think they know something for sure that actually isn't true. So, you know, again, step four in the proceeding is you finish the bankruptcy, your trustee gives you a certificate of discharge, and that legal document means that all of those debts that were causing all those issues, they're now legally gone full and final settlement. Never again can they bother you. So that's a really important step, the trustee giving you that certificate. We'll be back with more right after this. This segment we're talking about, and this I would think is sort of an age-old issue when it comes to debt, uh, and talking about people who have partners. Are you responsible for paying your spouse's creditors? If you're entering into a relationship or you've been in the relationship for quite some time and all of a sudden you become aware that, uh uh-oh, they're dealing with something that I'm not. So Blair's going to explain how a spouse's debts do and don't impact each other, as well as some tips for couples dealing with debt and where you can get... um, where you can get some help with a, a problem debt. So I guess number one, Blair, am I responsible for paying my spouse or common law partners creditors? And with that, doesn't it make a difference if the debt happened or was incurred before or after we met? Like, does that impact it? Well, yes, Elaine, it, it does. And, and this is a, an important segment, I think, because a lot of people really assume they know the answer to this question. And just about everybody, when I ask them and they give me their assumed answer, it's not correct. So giving you the fact here, most people are surprised to learn in Canada that relationships alone, whether it's marriage, common law, familiar relationships, they do not create any automatic responsibility for repaying someone else's debt. So simply put, you're not responsible for paying your spouse's creditors for their debts just because they're your spouse or common law partner and your credit history isn't shared either. It's a common misconception that spouses become legally responsible for repaying other people's debt once they're married. I remember hearing the expression, oh, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. Well, you just don't. There's just no truth to that at all. You're not responsible for repaying the debts of your spouse or your partner just because you're married, cohabitated, uh, even, God forbid, upon their death. You don't inherit a debt that you suddenly weren't on the hook for before just because you're married to somebody. Now, what can happen, what can trigger spousal debt, um, it can be triggered in two main ways. One is very specifically signing and taking on a joint liability by co-signing or guaranteeing somebody else's debt. So if you as a couple go in and you apply for credit in both of your names, well, obviously you are both responsible for it. Uh, If one of you had an existing credit line and you decided, you know, the bank would only increase the limit by getting somebody else to be a personal guarantor like your spouse, well, then you're both responsible. But in those cases, you've explicitly done something. Both spouses have explicitly signed to be responsible for that debt. So that should never come as a surprise. That should be something where eyes are wide open. 
The second example of how a debt can be shared among spouse um, is a debt can be deemed a family debt, um, and that can become divided following the act of separation or divorce under BC's Family Law Act. So let's say a couple gets married, and for whatever reason, one spouse incurs a bunch of debt, and it's to the benefit of the family unit. Um, if there's a dissolution of that marriage or relationship, well, then that debt can be split as between the spouses. So let's say the husband incurred all of the debt, he can make a claim to the wife saying, okay, well, then the wife should be responsible for half of this and she should be obligated to pay him back. Again, that's only on the dissolution or the breakdown of the relationship. Uh, if there was no relationship breakdown, that debt would still just be in one person's name. Now, just because the debt's in one person's name doesn't mean it doesn't have impact on the other person in the relationship. You know, of course, there's the financial stress, the worry about the cost of the debt action. Um, sometimes the assets that you own jointly could be at risk. If you have a joint bank account, perhaps some money could be taken from there. Um, if you're both entitled to a real estate and one spouse is getting sued, well, then that charge can be placed against that real estate. So it's not that there's no impact to the other partner, but the strictly speaking, that question question, you know, do you marry somebody's debt? Are spouses responsible for each other's debt? It's a resounding and definitive no. Okay. But that, do that doesn't stop you from knowing that at this point, like getting some help and, and some solutions or support in dealing it, uh, with that is just the best idea. And I know that a licensed insolvency trustee, that's the place to go for so many reasons, including the fact that they're federally regulated and they're going to look after you properly and within the bounds of law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what are some of the solutions that, that you'd be able to offer if somebody walked in the door with that situation, Blair? Well, often the best way for a spouse to support another spouse if they're going through a debt problem is to connect them with the right resources and make them aware of the solutions that already exist. So just because one spouse might have money sufficient to pay off another spouse's debt doesn't mean that's the right answer. And what we definitely recommend is for every couple, if they're incurring debt, to investigate the option of a consumer proposal. And a consumer proposal consolidates all of the debt together. Uh, there's no borrowing required, no credit credit rating qualifier uh, and no cosigner responsible either and oftentimes the, the debt is significantly reduced down so if one spouse incurred a ton of debt they could file a consumer proposal themselves uh, reduce the debt down to what they can afford to repay and have no impact whatsoever on the credit rating assets or income uh, of the other spouse who's not responsible for that debt and just to give you some examples using numbers so let's say the debt balance was twenty thousand dollars and maybe it's on credit cards. So every month, you know, high interest costs, just treading water, making minimum payments, doing a consumer proposal to repay 30% of that balance, which is right in the ballpark where most proposals sit, that would be a payment of just $165 per month over 36 months. So some people would be doing a double take. You're telling me $20,000 a debt can go away in three years at $165 per month exactly the case and that's the power of a consumer proposal and let's go to that example if one spouse had financial resources and could help to pay the debt off in full 
Well, I would suggest the spouse with debt filing a consumer proposal, reducing it down to maybe 30% of the balance. That's the time to help that person pay off the debt. And then the couple is that much better off with that extra savings that they now have together. They can invest, put together an emergency fund, and hopefully not end up in a similar situation where one of them had to incur some debt. So a consumer proposal is a great option. Again, it can be done uh, just by one partner. Now, it is also possible to do what's called a joint consumer proposal. So in the event that couples do have some debts together, they don't have to all be shared, but a consumer proposal can allow the couple collectively to make one consolidated payment, pay no interest, and have that debt significantly reduced down to what they can actually afford. Excellent. I, I know that you in our last couple of minutes in this segment, you've got some really good tips and advice Uh that are specifically for couples when it comes to debt. And, and I'd, I'd love to cover just a couple of those if we could. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. And some of them, you know, it can be a little bit on the uncomfortable side, but it, it's all worth it. You know, everything that you ever want is on the other side of discomfort, I've heard said. And, you know, that the number one piece of advice is to not try to hide your money troubles or your financial issues. You really want to have open and ongoing conversations about money matters and share the responsibility for managing your household finances. Um, so you really want to view your partner, someone that can support you, not somebody that you're worried about judging you when they actually find out how bad your situation is. So keeping that financial transparency at every stage of the relationship is just so important. Um, a couple of pitfalls is you really want to be cautious before you co-sign any debt or take on any joint debt with another person. Um, you're not going to be suddenly making all your debt joint by being married. But then if you suddenly go out and start applying for everything together, you might be in a situation where now you are very inextricably tied together. And there's usually not a whole lot of benefit to that. What a lot of people don't realize when they co-sign a debt for somebody else is that it's not a 50-50 liability. So it's not that, well, if my my husband or wife doesn't pay, I'm on the hook for 50 cents of this debt. No, it's what's called a joint and several liability, which means you could be required to pay the whole amount back. So you have to be very cautious. We generally say it's almost never a good idea to co-sign somebody else's debt or even to apply for credit jointly. It's always better to keep things separate. Yeah, really good advice. Um, and I, I want to end the segment too, by just reminding if any part of what we've been talking about just even slightly resonates with you and you sort of are wondering, oh boy, does that fit us? Is that something that we should be paying attention to? It's just such a good idea to sit down with somebody from Sands and Associates and, and say, okay, this is our situation. What do you think we should do? And that's what they're there for. Uh, the phone number to use, 1-800-661-3030. They've got a terrific website, which may answer some of your questions as well. It's well-written and well-thought-out, and that's sans dash trustee.com helping you get out of debt you've been listening to dollars and cents see you next time the proceeding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser the opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of cknw